like to ask the rest of you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 1. We're going to be looking at Paul's central theme to this great letter. I want to ask you a question. Don't answer it out loud. Just think about it. Have you ever been in a situation where you have been ashamed of the gospel? A situation where you're just kind of a little embarrassed to admit that you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus. Maybe people were speaking out derisively or critically about your faith and they didn't know where you stood and you felt put on the spot. Didn't know what to say. Maybe people were ridiculing the Bible or making fun of the faith. Maybe you've been asked to, to offer a prayer somewhere and it, if you found out it was inappropriate to use the name of Jesus in that venue. I read a story about a well-known and successful pastor in Chicago, successful in the sense that their church has now reached out to many thousands of people throughout the inner city. And he said at the time he was pastoring about uh, 16 people in a little tiny storefront down in the inner city, and somehow or another uh, someone had gotten his name as a Moody graduate working in the inner city, and he was asked to give the prayer at the graduation exercises for the University of Chicago. And he appeared and was appropriately attired in his graduation gown and uh, his degree and all the other dignitaries that were on the platform. And he said, as I was going up the platform, I was to be the first person who spoke after the welcome to pray the invocation. And he said, one of the... Uh, officers of the university said, uh, we know that you're an intelligent young man and that uh, you understand appropriate decorum in these circumstances, and there are many faiths represented here, so we're sure that you will understand if uh, you are not to use the name of Jesus or make any reference to Christianity in your prayer. You know, when he's about two minutes away. And he said, oh, I wish I had known that before I had been asked. And he said he was, he was confronted with that problem. And so as the president of the university called him to the platform, or the master of ceremonies called him to the platform to say the invocation, he said, I prayed a very generic prayer. I talked to God and uh, prayed very generically and said amen. And he said, I sat down. And he said, I don't know what the temperature was in that place, but he said, I felt like it was about 150. He said, my face was stinging. I felt like I was so hot I could hardly stand it. And he said, the conviction of the Holy Spirit was on me. Have you ever been in a situation like that? And he said, all through that service, he felt like he was glowing red with shame. Not ashamed of the gospel at this point, but shame because he had been ashamed. Well, it also came his turn to do the benediction. 
And he said, I made up for it. He said, I got up there and I prayed with enthusiasm. I prayed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I prayed that the graduates would be touched by the Holy Spirit, that they might find Christ as their Savior. (laughs) He said, I prayed a bold prayer. He said, the president of the college did not speak to me after the ceremony, but he said, I felt like I had honored Jesus Christ in that situation. Do you know that feeling of being in a spot where standing up and standing out for Jesus just makes you feel awkward? After Paul explains who he is and says a few words to the people to whom he's writing, in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, he declares his thesis for this letter. And in his opening salvo, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. You know, Paul also had reason, perhaps, in the human realm to be ashamed of the gospel. If you think about it, the message that he was preaching, and you look at his track record in the book of Acts, because he is on his Uh, last portion of the third missionary journey when he writes this letter, and he has already been all over the northern Mediterranean regions uh, in Asia and and, uh, Greece and all of that area preaching, and he has had plenty of opportunity to know the reaction to the gospel. And for one thing, his own countrymen, his own people, the Jews, have resoundly rejected Jesus Christ in the main most everywhere he's been. They have been insulted by the gospel message. They have felt that the gospel was taking away from the law and their traditions. They had felt that they had been following God for 2,000 years since Abraham. And now here comes this guy and this message and this group of people saying that It's not the law of Moses, it's not their traditions, but it's Jesus Christ who died on the cross. And and they rejected Christ. They were insulted and felt that all of their traditions were being ridiculed by the message of the gospel. Furthermore, Paul tells us in, in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1.23, says that the gospel is for the Jews a stumbling block but to the Greeks and the Gentiles, it's foolishness. You know, some people feel that Paul made an error on Mars Hill in Athens when he preached the gospel, uh, to uh, adopting the the, uh, kind of the mindset of the philosophers and saying, you have this statue to this unknown God, let me tell you about him. We studied the book of Acts most recently, and I don't think Paul was in error in his application or relevance of the gospel But the fact of the matter is, not very many educated people, not very many elite, not very many high in society are willing to come to Christ in the humility that is required of the cross. And furthermore, the Greeks thought this dead man who came out of a grave, what's this story all about? This is nonsense. They didn't believe that stuff. It was foolishness to them. So wherever Paul went with the message of the gospel, he met rejection. Rejection from his own people, rejection from the the Gentiles, rejection from the elite Greeks, rejection from the educated, rejection 
from the high in society, from the powerful, from the politicians. He was in trouble in almost every town. And you know, when we think about it today, we have the same kind of onus upon us as we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. People have accused us of having a slaughterhouse religion. What kind of faith is that, that you believe in human sacrifice? What's this big deal about blood, uh, human blood, having to be shed to pay for your sins? What are you guys talking about? We've been accused of being bigoted and narrow-minded, having an exclusive club, thinking that by holding up Jesus is the only way to God, that we are by default condemning the whole rest of the world to hell. We're condemning them to hell. We're the bigots. We're the narrow-minded. We're the ones that have our focus too straight. We live in a society that is trying to desensitize us with respect to sectarianism, and we're told to have an open mind and acceptance. We've got to learn to appreciate Islam. We've got to learn to appreciate Judaism. We've got to learn to respect the Buddhists and the Hindus among us. We've got to show deference to all of these other ideas. They're all equals on the same plane. There's only... If there's a deity at all, he can be approached through any way that we want to approach him. And we have to respect that and, and, and give honor to that and, and respect the views of other people. The truth of the matter is we do live in a pluralistic society and we do live in a nation that guarantees freedom of religion. But it's very interesting to me that in California, in the public school system, you can take a course that will teach you the teachings of Islam, but you cannot take a course in Christianity. That's a part of our broad-mindedness and, our, and developing tolerance for one another. The truth of the matter is we're tolerant of everyone but Christians. Because the message of the cross is offensive. And friends, by the way, we're not the ones that made up the rules. We're not the ones that said Jesus is the only way to God. That wasn't my idea. It's not your idea. It's God's idea. It's the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father unless he comes by me. That wasn't my plan. That's God's plan. But we live in a culture that would make us potentially ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We face the same kind of opposition that the Apostle Paul did in his day as he proclaimed Christ. Some people are deeply offended. What do you mean? I'm a sinner and I've got to come and, and uh, cast myself on the mercy of God at the foot of the cross. What are you talking about? And other people say, what are you talking about? This dead man come out of the grave. That's craziness. And other people would say, there's many ways to God. Your way is just as good as mine, and mine's just as good as yours. And so we live in a time when it's easy to be ashamed of the gospel. But I want us to recognize this morning that Paul started out by saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. And then he explains why that he is willing to come to the heart of the empire, to the city of Rome, and proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. Because he says, it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, is a righteousness from God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, 
the just shall live by faith. I want us to look this morning in depth for a moment at this good news, this gospel that Paul is not ashamed of. First of all, he says, it is the power of God unto salvation. Consider first the power of God. It is the power of God. Friends, we didn't make the plan up. This is God's power. This is God's idea. This is God's plan. He is the one who determined the criteria for salvation. You know, all the other religions of the world are looking for ways to reach God. Somehow there's this itch inside of man that needs a divine scratch. And man has been looking for all kinds of ways to reach God. And in that, in that effort, we call that religion. But in Jesus Christ, we do not have a religion. We have a relationship which God offers to man on His terms. And friends, either there is a God or there is not. And if He is there, then we ought to listen to what He has to say. And He is the one who determines the criteria. He says, the problem with you people is you have all sinned. Every one of you has turned away from me. You've gone your own way. You're following your own ideas. You want your own will. You have sinned against me. You're a sinner by birth and you're a sinner by choice. You live in your sin. I am a holy God. I cannot look upon sin in my holiness, in my purity. There has to be a way that I can reach you because I love you. And God is the only one who can establish the terms by which human beings can come back to Him. And those terms are in Jesus Christ. Because it is in Jesus Christ that He has satisfied the requirements of the law. We'll get to that much more in detail later on. But it is in Jesus Christ that He has satisfied the requirements of the law, made possible forgiveness of sin, and opened the potential for a relationship with Him that would last forever, ultimately in a place we call heaven. And God is the one who sets that criteria. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. It is God's power. It is God's effort. It is God's plan. It is God's purpose. There is no other way. If I give you any other idea or any other religion or any other plan, it's going to fail because God has the right, the prerogative to set the terms. But not only is it of God, it is the power of God. It's amazing when we preach the gospel that God has promised to accompany it with power. That He has promised to do something supernatural by His Holy Spirit. I can stand up here this morning and reason with you and debate with you and give you all kinds of theological concepts and philosophical ideas. Maybe I'll win you over to one point or another, or maybe not. But I will never, in my ability of reasoning and argument, convince you that you are a sinner, that you have sinned against the holy God, that your sin has separated you eternally from God, and that He alone has made provision for you to come back through Jesus Christ. It is the Holy Spirit who does that in the human heart. As the gospel message is preached, God's power goes forth and leads to salvation. 
And the other thing that Paul says is it is the power of God unto salvation. We need to explore that word a little further. We're going to be looking at it again in depth as we go through the book of Romans. But salvation, we have come to equate with going to heaven. It means I, I, I don't go to hell, I get to go to heaven. That's salvation. But salvation is a much broader meaning than that. Salvation comes from the root word sozo, and it means to heal. It means to restore or to recover something that has been lost. The word, the gospel word, redemption, is closely associated with salvation. And redemption, to redeem something, is to go and recover it for its original purpose. If you think about Adam and Eve in the garden before they sinned, and you think about what that situation was like, here is a perfect environment. Here is a perfect paradise. There's no sin in Eden at this point. And because there's no sin, there's no sickness. There's no pain. There is no threat of illness. They never knew what a fever was like. They had not had a headache. They had a perfect marriage. There was no conflict. They had complete unity. There was harmony of relationship. There was no anxiety. No one needed Valium in the Garden of Eden. There was no fear. There was no gastric distress from tension. They did not have mental problems. They did not have emotional abuse. It was a perfect paradise. And every single day, God walked with them. Intimate, up close, personal, and fellowship. And there was no death. There was no death. Before, before sin entered the world, there was no death. We'll study that in Romans chapter 5, but you think about that for a moment. I don't care how old you think the earth is. You can think the earth is as old as you want to think. But you've got to recognize that in the Garden of Eden there was no death before there was sin. Nothing died. There were no hawks swooping down on the rabbits and ripping them to shreds. There was no fear in all of the kingdom because it was a perfect paradise. You get a glimpse of that when Isaiah talks about the millennial kingdom and he says that the wolf will lay down beside the lamb. The children will play at the mouth of the poisonous snake's den. And there will be no death and, and no, no harm, in essence, in my kingdom. And, and a person at a hundred years of age will be considered young. How many of you think you'll be considered young at 100 years of age right now? <laughs> I'm only just a little over halfway there. I don't feel young. Salvation, my friends, is redemption and restoration. The sufficiency of the gospel of Jesus Christ saves us. 
not just from hell into heaven. Did you realize that that is merely the byproduct of redemption? Once we are restored to right relationship with God, and we have fellowship with Him, and His Spirit lives in us, where can we go but heaven? Heaven is not the goal. The goal is relationship. The goal is restoring what was lost. Coming back to God. Having fellowship with Him. Being in communion with Him. And listen, my friends, the power of the gospel to save is not just something that's going to happen in some distant future in the resurrection when we are standing before the judgment seat of God and we have a free pass because of Jesus Christ and we are admitted into heaven eternally. But salvation is something that begins the moment you turn to Jesus. He is the one who is sufficient to change your mind, to change your heart, to change your emotions, to deal with your life. He is the one to bring healing. Maybe you were abused as a child and your emotions have been damaged because of that childhood abuse. My friends, Jesus is sufficient to heal you. He is adequate to free you from those damaged emotions. Maybe you have been stressed in your life and your mind has been at the point of cracking and breaking. Jesus is the one that can put your distraught feelings back together and and unscramble those lost thoughts and bring your mind back under control. He is the one that can heal you from your addictions. He is the one that can deliver you from your bondage. He is the one that can take you out of the miry clay of your life and the distress and the confusion and the frustration and set your feet upon a rock and make straight paths for your feet. He is the one that can heal your marriage. He is the one that can heal relationships. He is the one that can build the bridges between human beings and restore love where animosity and hate and frustration have reigned. He is the one that can recover and restore and heal and make right. Jesus is sufficient. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of Him. I'm not ashamed of this message. I'm not ashamed to proclaim this truth because Jesus Christ can dramatically and radically transform your life now. He is the answer to your needs. How could you be ashamed of a Savior who can do for you what all of psychology cannot do, what all of medicine cannot do, what all of counseling theory cannot do? How could you be ashamed of one who can fix you from the inside out and ultimately take you to His glorious home in heaven to be with Him forever? Every need of humankind is ultimately satisfied in Jesus Christ. Friends, I realize that's not a popular message today. We're told in the church, you need to stick to religion. You need to talk about heaven. You need to leave addictive behaviors to the specialist. You need to leave deliverance from mental and emotional illnesses to the professionals. You need to let the counselors handle that. You need to let those who are alcoholics and drug addicts go to the appropriate uh, societies and organizations that are designed to treat their problems. You need to just talk about heaven and and prayer and, and sweet little things that have to do with faith. But friends, Jesus has everything to do with all of that. He is the all-sufficient one. 
When we talk about the gospel, we're not talking about theology or philosophy or theory. We're talking about a person. This is the good news about Jesus Christ. And he is the one who is adequate for all of our needs. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And here's a beautiful thing. What does it take to avail yourself of this mighty power of God? What does it take to have your life changed by this living, resurrected Savior? What does it take to, to have a relationship with God restored in Jesus Christ? It takes faith. Anyone can believe. It is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul tells us that this glorious salvation is available on the basis of faith alone. It does not require works of righteousness. Listen to me. You don't have to try to get better before you can come to Jesus. If you're trying to do that, you should know by now you've already failed. And the harder you try, the worse it gets. You don't have to clean up your act. You don't have to make your life better. You can just come to Jesus on the basis of faith. You don't have to, to, to join some religious institution. You don't have to go through some religious rituals. You don't have to do penance. There's nothing you can do to make your life right with God. And because we're in such a condition that there's nothing we can do, God makes this gospel available to everyone on the basis of faith. To everyone who believes. You say, what does it mean to believe? It means to take God at His word, to trust Him. Lord, I come to you. I believe that this message is true. I believe that in Jesus Christ, you have laid on Him my sin. I believe that He died on the cross for my sins. I believe that you accept me in Him on the basis of faith. And from this day forward, I want you to take my life. I believe you will. I believe you will change me. I trust you. And the Scripture says, that avenue is open to everyone. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus said, whosoever will may come. The Gospel is open and available to everyone on the basis of faith. What is it about this gospel, this message that is such wonderful news? Well, Paul tells us as he moves on to verse 17, for in it, in the message of the gospel, a righteousness from God is being revealed out of faith into faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. What does that phrase, the righteousness of God, mean? There are three possible interpretations. The first one is, you see that in verse 17? In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. How many of you, when you look at the Bible you're holding in your lap there, see the word, the in italics. How many of you have that in your Bible? Can I just raise your hand? 
How many of you don't have the word the there at all? Okay, there's a couple. The Old American Standard Version of 1901 translated this phrase, a righteousness from God. That's pretty interesting. A righteousness from God. The reason the the is in italics is because when a word is in italics, it means the translators added it for the sake of clarity. That word does not occur in the original language. And usually in the original language, when the definite article the is not there, we replace it with our indefinite article a. In the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, or a righteousness of God is revealed. And so there's been some confusion and discussion. What does it mean when Paul says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed? Three possible interpretations. The first one is, perhaps it means God's attribute of righteousness. In other words, it's the righteousness of God. God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel. His holiness, his sinlessness, his justice is revealed in the gospel. Well, let's go back to the definition of gospel. Remember what it is? Good news. The gospel is good news. Now, before you can receive the good news you need to understand the bad news. Because if you don't understand the bad news, you will not understand why you need the good news. And the bad news is, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Every one of us has turned to our own way, Isaiah says. We have all gone our own direction. We're living for ourselves. We're following our own ideas. We're off on our own plan. We have all sinned. We're all in rebellion. Now, if I have told you that bad news, and then I come to you and I give you this news, but I have news for you. God is a holy God. He is a righteous God. He is a just God. He cannot look upon sin. He hates it from the depths of his being. He must judge sin because he is a righteous God. Is that good news? That is not good news. That is more bad news. Because I've told you you're a sinner, and now I've told you God hates sin, and he's going to judge it, because he is righteous. So, the first idea that this is an attribute of God, namely his righteousness, we probably should rule out, because to tell a sinner that God is righteous is not good news. But there are two other possible interpretations. The second one is that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed in that he is able through Jesus Christ to exact the penalty of sin and place it upon Jesus in order to justify those who believe. In fact, Paul tells us that in Romans 3, and we're going to see it in much more detail. But Paul tells us that he might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith, that he poured out upon Jesus Christ, the sinless Lamb of God, 
all of his anger and judgment concerning sin. And Jesus became the satisfactory payment and appeasement of God's wrath so that Jesus could take my sin and I could in place be declared righteous before a holy God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, go home and read that chapter this afternoon, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, but in that chapter Paul tells us he made him who knew no sin to be the, the, uh, the, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us in order that we might be made the righteousness of God or Christ in him. Now, if I tell you that, that's good news. That is really good news. That says the bad news is you're a sinner. More bad news is God is holy and righteous and has to judge sin. But the good news is that Jesus Christ has been made sin for us. On the cross, He took my punishment. On the cross, He took my shame. On the cross, He took my sin. And He died for it. That I might be made the righteousness of Christ, or God, in Him. That's good news. That's really good news. But then there's a third possible interpretation. And the third interpretation is that we take this literally just the way it reads in the Greek. For in it, in the Gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. Now, if I tell you that you're a sinner and that you stand guilty before a holy God and that there is no way that you can work off your sin, there's no way you can atone for what you've done wrong. You know, and that, that's true. There's no, matter, there's no way you can dilute it enough. You can't get rid of what's already done. So you can never be pure. But God is willing to give you a gift of His righteousness. He will give you righteousness. Righteousness that will meet His requirements. Righteousness that is totally pure. Righteousness that is absolutely holy. Righteousness that is spotless and without sin. And it meets His just demands. And it's available to you on the basis of faith. You can trust God and He will give you His righteousness. That is good news also. And probably the truth lies somewhere in the midst of both of them because Paul, of the eight times that Paul uses this phrase, the righteousness of God, seven of those times occur in Romans and he emphasizes different aspects of it each time it comes up. Here is the essence of the Gospel message. That in Jesus Christ, the good news is revealed. That God is offering to us a righteousness that meets His requirements on the basis of faith and that you can have it if you will trust Him. And it is a righteousness of such a nature that it satisfies the just requirements of the law because Jesus paid the penalty for my sin. 
God is not winking at my sin. He's not pretending it isn't there. He's not just doting on me and overlooking it and saying, I know you tried hard, you made some mistakes, but I'm just going to let those go. He says, look at the cross. Look at the cross. Look at the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Look at Him hanging there. See the blood dropping to the ground. That's the price of your sin. That's what it cost. But He took the price. He paid the penalty. And because of what He did in His infinite person, I will release you if you will trust Me. I will forgive you and I will give you a gift of righteousness that is My perfect righteousness and I will give it to you on the basis of faith and you can stand in My presence whiter than snow, pure and clean and holy, now and forever. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek, because in this glorious message of Jesus, a righteousness from God is revealed. From faith to faith. What does that mean, from faith to faith? Well, literally in the original language, it says, out of faith, into faith. What are we saying? A righteousness from God is revealed that arises out of faith. You don't have to work for it. It arises out of faith. It comes out of faith. As the gospel is preached, and you understand this message is applied by the Holy Spirit, He begins to make you realize that apart from works of the law, apart from religious deeds, apart from penance, apart from painful trying, apart from all your vain efforts, on the basis of faith, a righteousness is available. And as the Holy Spirit begins to deal with your heart, it leads you into faith. I believe, Lord. There's a righteousness available to me on the basis of faith, out of faith. I believe. I trust. I go into faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Not by works, but the just shall live by faith. A couple of weeks ago, we were meeting with our leadership team and other leaders in the church and staff, and our guest speaker brought a video with him, and he showed us the testimony of a young woman who had, by her own admission, just had an incredibly rough and perhaps adventurous, if you want to use that term, life. She, she said very straightforwardly, I searched for meaning in everything. And she was of an appearance of a lifestyle that had pursued everything. And she said, I tried all kinds of religions. I tried meditation. I tried sexual relationships. She said, I tried everything there was to try. 
And she said, then somebody began to love me. Just love me unconditionally in Jesus Christ and share with me the good news of Jesus. And she said, one day, I went home and decided to talk to this God that I wasn't even sure was there. And she said, I got on my knees, and I was going to talk to him about this gospel message, this good news. And she said, as I started to pray, she said, they say your life flashes before your eyes before you die. She said, mine flashed before my eyes before I prayed. And she said, in an instant, she said, I saw, I saw every man I'd ever slept with. She said, I saw every sin I'd committed. She said, I saw every religion I had dabbled in. She said, I saw everything that I had ever done in pursuit of meaning that was offensive to God. Friends, no one can do that but the Holy Spirit. You can argue with people. You can debate with people. You can try to use all of the best apologetics with people. But in the final analysis, you will never convince anyone to follow Jesus. And if you do succeed, perchance, in doing that, all you've done is gotten a head follower. You've obtained mental assent. You cannot convince a person that they have sinned against a holy God in the root of their being. You cannot expose it the way the Holy Spirit can. But Paul says when the gospel is preached, God does this. The power of God goes forth in the message. And it's not a human-to-human -human transaction that is going on, but the Holy Spirit of God is accompanying the proclamation, and he is getting into the heart. And this woman bowed on her knees in her room, and she said, I saw my sin." No one could ever have persuaded her that all of that was sin. And then, and here's the, the truth about the gospel. She said, in the midst of seeing my sin for what it was, she said, I saw a God who loved me, who loved me and wanted me for his own. And she said, the tears began to flow. Only God, only God can, in the same moment of time, show you how guilty you are before His holiness and also make you know how much He loves you. Only God can do that. Total love in the midst of your total sin. And she said, I invited Jesus to come into my life to forgive my sin. I turned from it and I asked him to make me a new person and to, and to take over. She was giving her testimony because the church she belongs to, she's become a spiritual leader. God has healed her emotions. God has healed her past. God has taken away her addictions. God is in the process of making her to look like Jesus. God has set her feet upon a straight path. He has planted her upon a rock. This is the power 
of the gospel. You can't argue people into faith. But as you proclaim to them the good news, that in the gospel, God reveals a righteousness that he will give you on the basis of faith. And that Jesus Christ has the capacity to transform your life, to free you from your addictions, to heal you from your bondages, to restore your, your broken and damaged emotions, to put your mind back together, to, to liberate your spirit, to give you maturity, to set you upon a straight path, to heal relationships, to give you peace with God, to put you in relationship with Him that will last forever. The Holy Spirit of God will come into that heart and into that life and make the transformation. It is the power of God unto salvation. And I am not ashamed. We're going to see in weeks to come how the love of God is unfolded in the gospel that frees us from the penalty of sin, liberates us from the power of sin, releases us from the bondage of the law, and frees us from the fear of death and leads us to the confidence of God for all eternity. Has God been speaking to your heart this morning? If you're here today and you're a believer, my prayer is that we will not be ashamed of the all-sufficiency of a fully adequate Savior who will do all for us. And if you're here this morning without Jesus Christ, is the Holy Spirit dealing with your heart? Do you sense that God is confronting you in your heart? Do you sense the witness of the Spirit saying, what that guy up there has been saying is true. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the Living One. I was dead, but now I'm alive forevermore. My name is Jesus. This is the truth. Is God dealing with your heart? He wants you to come home to Him today. He wants to change your life. He wants to free you from the things that entangle you. He wants to give you a new life in Jesus Christ. And He can do that because He's a powerful God. And this is a powerful message. Father, I pray this morning... In the name of Jesus, that for those of us who know you, this morning you would encourage us that we have no reason to be ashamed of the gospel. I know we're ridiculed. I know we're mocked. I know we're told to pipe down and Give room for other beliefs. But, oh God, we hold in our hearts and in our minds the truth of Almighty God, a treasure in these earthen vessels. Teach us how to love and accept other people while at the same time holding forth the truth that Jesus Christ has died for them 
And he is the only way back. Give us boldness that we will not be ashamed of the gospel. Because Jesus can change their life. And Father, I pray this morning for anyone who is in this room who has never made that decision to trust you. Lord, would you right now in this moment speak to their hearts. You have promised when the word is preached, the gospel is proclaimed, that your Holy Spirit will accompany it with power. And I want to ask you to do what I cannot do and what no one in this room can do. I want to ask you to go right to the heart of any person in this room without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And right now, by your Spirit, by your spirit reveal to them the truth of what has been said. Expose their sin so that they can see clearly how they have offended you and at the same time reveal your love so that they can see how much you care for them and give them in this moment faith to believe, to trust you, that if they will turn their life over to Jesus Christ, he will forgive their sin and heal their broken heart and restore their life, and set them on a path that will lead to glory and eternity in your presence forever. You love them, Lord. You have loved them with an everlasting love. Now in Jesus' name, speak to their heart and communicate that truth. And if God is dealing with you in that way right now where you sit, you can make that transaction by agreeing with God that you are a sinner, acknowledging from your heart that Jesus has paid the price, and embracing him with all your being to trust him and follow him from this day forward. And he will be faithful to his word and do what he has promised. Lord, we ask for this in the blessed name of Jesus Christ and for his glory. Amen.